CFC. Um, just make sure that I'm where I need to be there. Uh, good morning to those of you who may be joining us online. I want to invite you. We've prayed for the service. We've prayed for the offering. I want to invite you to pray with me very briefly uh, because there's a, a lot to get into. Uh, for the message this morning, would you join me? Father, we ask that you would meet us right here, right now through your word and that we would encounter you in a fresh way. Give us what we need, even if it's different than what we came in here wanting. Uh, You tell us what we need. You tell us what is necessary. Uh, You tell us what your promises are and what your um, demands are of us. And we ask that you would allow us to leave here, not just with a sense of uh, how we're supposed to respond, but with the knowledge that you will give us what we need to respond. And so open our hearts and our minds to receive your word, not just in a way where we understand what it says, but in a way where we want to live it out. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Within Christian culture, I think oftentimes we give the wrong people a hard time. Uh, There are people uh, who are Christians who are zealous to do good works. They're not content with a sort of Sunday morning Christianity, and so they push harder and they, they uh, seek for ways to get more focused and they practice spiritual disciplines and they are energetic about their prayer lives and they're diligent with studying Scripture and they're always talking to you about how they're evangelizing their neighbors and their coworkers. And for some of us, maybe not here, but within sort of uh, Christian culture, that can be a little bit obnoxious sometimes. Someone's always reporting to us how much they're pursuing God and their pursuit of holiness, and we have terms for that, holier than thou, holy rollers. Sometimes somebody gets saved and they're really excited at first, and you're, in your mind you're just kind of like, yeah, yeah, the honeymoon period. I remember when I couldn't shut up about Jesus too. It'll simmer down. You might even say, maybe not anyone in here, You may have heard people say like, hey, you know, chill. You don't want to go too hard too fast and burn out and, you know, relax a little bit. Um, And we don't want to do that. When you see someone pursuing God and pursuing Christ and pursuing holiness in zealous ways, the last thing you want to do is throw a blanket on it. And if we feel a little bit sore because someone else is pushing hard and it kind of maybe not explicitly, they're not saying it, And maybe you're not saying it, but if you're feeling a little chafed, it might be because their zeal is exposing our idleness or our lack of zeal or some zeal that we found when we first came to Christ and then it got left behind somewhere when we started to notice, oh, I guess everybody doesn't evangelize all the time. I guess everybody doesn't always talk about what they learned this morning in Scripture. I guess it's not normal to talk about how long we spent in prayer the other day. In fact, if we do that, we're kind of seen as sort of legalistic Pharisees, and that doesn't really fit Christian culture. And without it ever being stated, we sort of bring people into the mean of mediocrity. And God doesn't want us to do that. Every endeavor, really, uh, I mean, most endeavors have their sort of upper echelon of people that are most focused, most diligent, performing at the highest levels. In sports, you have the Olympics, right? 
In the military, you have the special forces. That's not to denigrate the regular forces, but there's something special about these troops, right? Um, uh, In the academy, you might have those who graduated summa cum laude, and they're awarded for that highest honor. That doesn't mean everybody else performed badly. It doesn't mean everybody else got an F, but there's room, isn't there, within our cultures that we can say, look, there's great effort being put here, but then there's people that make the extra effort. There's people that go the extra mile. And this passage is another passage that we can kind of skip and go, look, I don't know what's going on here. Some, some people is growing their hair out and they're not allowed to do certain things. A Nazarite vow, what is that? And what I'm putting to you is that God and His grace gave all these commands to the group of people. Everybody is to not do these things and everybody is supposed to do these things. And some of you are suffocated by that. 613 laws that the Israelites had to follow. Is that enough? Is there anyone in their right mind that would go, 613 laws, how about I add a couple more? How about I add a couple more to that? There must have been. There must have been. Because God in number six opens up a path for people to do extra. And he allows it. God could have said, look, hey, what are you trying to prove? You've got all these laws and you have a hard time keeping those. You have a hard enough time keeping those. You want to do extra? No. Sit down. No, he's like, okay, if you're going to do extra, here's how you do extra. And these people are not supposed to be um, ridiculed. They're not supposed to be thought of as, oh, you're on your high horse. No, they're models and examples. Let's look at that in Numbers chapter 6. Numbers chapter 6, we see clearly that God does not discourage a further commitment to holiness, and we shouldn't either. God doesn't want to disparage anyone who wants to do more. And as we look at this, he's not inventing the Nazarite vow. Many scholars think the way this is written, it doesn't explain where it came from or, or what exactly is the original nature of it, but God is saying, I want you to do it my way. So there was already some sense of what it meant to take a special vow. I mean, it's, it's kind of like you've got your lay people in the Catholic Church, your lay people and your priests, but in between there, you've got your like, super-powered lay people, your monks and your nuns. They're not clergy, but they're of their own volition, of their own desire, separating themselves in a greater way. Let's take a look right at the top of chapter 6. We see that God, uh, He doesn't demand it, He doesn't require it, but He allows it. He's good with it. The Lord, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself, and every time it says him or he, it, it's him or her. Why? Because it just said, this is for a man or woman. In verse 3, He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, and he shall drink no vinegar made from the Wine made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes, fresh or dried. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. So let's just pause there a second, okay? Because this is already getting like, okay, (laughs) you can't eat raisins, you can't eat, you know, you can't eat grape juice, you can't eat fermented grape, you can't eat grape skins, you can't eat the seeds from the grape, you can't eat anything. I don't know who sits there and picks out the, the grape skins and just eats the skin. I think it's just a way of saying anything grape. Right? It's, it's like just stops just shy of like, don't wear purple. 
Anything related to the vine, you don't touch it. So let's unpack this and just pause for a second because I want you to notice a couple of things. The fact that it's a special vow means that it's different than, than other things. It's, it's for a time. It's for a period. Uh, and people may have different periods set. Of course, we can think of someone like Samson. Some people will say Samuel, who were sort of Nazarites for life. Uh, but a vow is for a, a, a special period of time. It's an extra layer of separation, and that's the key. What this is about is separation. When you read through all the laws, you go through Leviticus, and you see all these laws, and some of them kind of make sense, and some of them you're like, you know, it's like shellfish, and not allowed shellfish. Okay, I don't really like shellfish anyway. Others of you are like, well, I really like shellfish. What's wrong with shellfish? Well, the Bible doesn't say, but at the end of the day, what we know is that what God is communicating is you're not supposed to eat like the rest of the world. You're not supposed to dress like the rest of the world. You're not supposed to behave like the rest of the world. You're not even supposed to look like the rest of the world. And those laws uh, are ways of God separating his people from everybody else. The Nazarite vow is an extra layer of separation, consecration. In fact, Nazarite comes from the word Nazir for separate. So this is someone who isn't required to do it, doesn't have to do it, but is zealous to do it. They want to do extra on top of all those 613 laws. They want to be more separate. And the way they do that is to separate themselves in three key areas, three big no's. We covered a little bit one of them. The first one in verse 3 to 4 is no grapes, nothing to do with grapes, nothing about the grape, nothing from the grape. And then he throws in there any kind of strong drink. You might be like, this is alcohol, but it's not from the vine. Not, not, not that either. No alcohol of any kind and definitely nothing to do, anything to do with grapes. In verses 3 to 4, no grapes, no haircut in verse 5. Uh, he says, all the days of his or her vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. How much time? The time that you set. But once you set it, don't go back. If you said three years, don't do two years. And the hair is a symbol of this separation, a symbol of this consecration. He shall be holy, set apart, consecrated, sanctified. He shall let the locks of hair of the locks of hair of his head grow long. So there was a sort of a visual uh, recognition that somebody was a Nazarite, depending on how long they made that vow for. But their hair show that they were in this Nazarite vow. They are not to cut it. Again, you think of Samson, who little by little broke all these rules, and he started drinking, and then he touched a dead body, which we'll get to next, and then he cut his hair, or had his hair cut. Then, in verses 6 to 8, he told, no grapes, no alcohol, no strong drink, no haircut, no corpses, 6 through 8. All the days that he separates himself. See, that? Don't, don't miss the point. This is about separation. He shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister. If they die, shall he make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. I don't want you to miss the weight of that. No one's supposed to go near an unclean, uh, no one's supposed to, make themselves unclean by going near a dead body or touching a dead body. But if it's your spouse, if it's your own kid, exceptions are made, not for the Nazarite. You made a three-year vow, in year two, your wife dies, get out. 
Is that harsh? Yeah, it's harsh, but you want, it's extra. <laughs> it's extra, and God's saying, if you're going to go hard, you're going to go in, you're going to do it in a way that communicates that you're in, not, oh, I thought I was in, but I'm not really in. If you're going to be zealous, there's going to be commitment, and it's going to be a high level of commitment, a high level of separation that goes beyond the level of separation that everybody already is tasked to do. And so what we see here, and I think what we need to take notice of, is that God does not demand this of, of anyone uh, in Israel. Samson is a special case, isn't it? Because God came to his mother and said, hey, guess what? You're going to finally have a child. Oh, great. Yeah, but Nazarite. Aside from that, th- what this is saying is, look, someone could be a Nazarite. If you're going to be a Nazarite, here's what it's going to be like. But what God is doing, he's creating a lane for extra, right? He's creating a lane for someone who wants to do more and be more and get better and be more focused and be more diligent and be more separate. And man, if we're in a New Testament era and we have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in us and you read about this hard-hearted people of Israel and even some of them want to do extra, what excuse in the world do we have for not being diligent? I think we confuse grace for license, where we say God doesn't care about laws, God doesn't care about rules, what he cares about is a relationship. Well, newsflash, relationships are based on rules. And if you don't think so, you know, (laughs) I have to be careful with examples I use, but I mean like, you know how to tick off your spouse. He's like, well, I thought this was based on relationship, not rules. Yeah, you don't get to do what you want in any relationship. Of course there are rules. You don't get to betray people. You don't get to talk about people behind their back. Right? You don't get to cuss people out. You don't get to violently hurt people. Of course there's rules. And so we think, don't we, of uh, Jesus' sermon in Matthew 5, his Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> he, he, tells, he makes it very clear. You want to learn about discipleship? I'm going to teach you about discipleship. All those laws in the Old Testament, they're not going anywhere. I didn't come to abolish those. I'm here to uphold them. I'm here to fulfill them. And in fact, he says, if your righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What? Does that sound like Jesus lowering the bar? It's okay. I'm going to the cross so you can just do whatever you want. Or does that sound like Jesus raising the bar? That's like Jesus saying, everyone should be a Nazarite. To go in as hard as you can. To push after me as hard as you can. Because if you don't have that zeal, if you don't have that push for righteousness and holiness, you're not in the kingdom. One more verse that comes to mind, and we'll throw this one up here, is Titus 2.14. Titus 2.14, I mean, this verse just kept ringing in my mind as I was reading uh, number six this week. And here you have Jesus, that we, we know it's Jesus because of the end of verse 13. That's the who. Who gave himself for us. Why did Jesus give himself? Or why did he come and be born? Why did he go to the cross? Why did he rise from the dead? He gave himself for us. And why did he do that? to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, a word that's used, a phrase that's used of the people of Israel, 
were pulled out of the world, right? Like Israel was pulled out from all the other nations for his own possessions. For what purpose? What are they going to be like? Well, zealous for good works is what it's supposed to be like. See, this isn't about the bare minimum. What are the laws? 613? Okay, let me just write down all the do's and don'ts of Scripture and check the checklist every day and just do that. Well, good job. That's a good start. But that's not where God wants to leave you because that person is just looking at the check boxes like, okay, I didn't do that, I didn't do that, okay. Within that, what am I allowed to do? But he's saying, no, no, I want you to go past the check boxes and push for more. Why? Because you're zealous for good works. You're not just protecting yourselves by not breaking laws. You're pushing into the positive column of saying, what can I do to please God, to do more, to impact other people? And I think that's why we have this chapter on the Nazarite vow. You've got all these laws in Leviticus, all these laws in, in Deuteronomy. You've got laws and numbers. And God is communicating all this separateness. And right when you start feeling ex- exasperated, that you need Levites as a barrier to protect the Israelite people from getting killed, from killing themselves by approaching this holy God, that some people in their right minds would go, I want to add another layer to that. I think God is creating a lane for those who are desirous of God, who don't just do religious things because they don't want to go to hell. It's because they want to pursue heaven. And they don't want to pursue heaven because of streets made out of gold or how big a mansion is going to be. It's because Jesus is there. And we long for him and we want him. And holiness to us isn't some weight. It's what Jesus looks like. And we love him and we love what he looks like. And so we love those things that look like him. And if hard-hearted Israelites could be zealous enough to think about adding layers of separation to their lives, I think we, we can be instructed by that as an example. God doesn't say, stop being so overzealous. Who do you think you are? He, he invites it. He welcomes it. He allows it. He accepts it. And he makes a way for them to do it. Now, if you're sitting here and you feel like, yeah, yeah, pastor, preach. I'm, I'm ready to do it. I've been doing it. I'm, I'm in the fast lane. I'm in that upper echelon. I'm in the Olympics of Christianity. Like, I'm going for the gold, man. Yeah, you might not be in. I mean, if you're sitting there thinking like, yeah, I got this, you don't got it. If you're sitting there and you're thinking, um, it's not that you think you're able to do it, but you feel like you're just not willing. You're like, ah, that's, this is enough. Going go to church... I know I'm supposed to read my Bible. It's like, I already read it a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's enough. I just don't want it. Yeah, you might not be in. You're doing good works. You're not zealous for them. But if you're in here and you recognize you're not able, but you are willing, in your willingness, you realize you have kind of an inability to do it. You recognize, man, no matter how hard I push, and I want to do it, I want to do it, but... I don't always do it well. And sometimes I fall back and sometimes I misstep. Sometimes I sin by doing something I shouldn't have done. Sometimes I sin by not doing something I should have done. Oh my goodness, (laughs) I'm failing on two sides here. But I want it. That's right where God wants you. You want it, there's a desire, but you're recognizing the fact that you can't do it. That's the initial posture of the Christian. And that's what God communicates here. Now watch this. 
You want to be a Nazarite? You want to be special? You want to separate yourself in extra ways? You're still going to have to kill animals because you're not enough. Wow, what could have very much started as a you're enough sermon. You can do it. Turns into a, no, you can't. And that's exactly the rub, isn't it? He says in verse 9, let me give you an example of how you're gonna, you might mess up your Nazarite vow. And the example he uses is, you're not supposed to touch a dead body, but what if accidentally you do? It doesn't matter if it was an accident, the vow was broken, verse 9. And if any man dies very suddenly beside him, and he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day he shall shave it. On the eighth day, here's all the killing, on the eighth day, you shall bring two turtle doves or two pigeons to the priest, to the entrance of the tent meeting. Why, to put them in a cage and feed them little bird seeds and watch them grow? No. Verse 11, the priest shall offer one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering and make atonement for him because he sinned by reason of the dead body. So just let that sink in for a second. He didn't kill the man. The man had a heart attack next to him. I didn't give him the heart attack, and God counts it as sin. Why? The holiness has been disrupted. We talked about that before. And then he says, and he shall consecrate his head that same day and separate himself to the Lord for the days of his separation and bring a male lamb of a year old for a guilt offering, but the previous period shall be void because his separation was defiled. You gamers now in this generation, and you die, and you just respawn, and you die, and you respawn, and you just keep collecting ammo or whatever you're doing. Some of you are completely lost. That's okay, young people. You know, in my day, you died? Maybe you get three lives? Start the game. Not the level. The game. Start it all over again. You might have had to pull the cartridge out, blow into it, stick it back in, but whatever. You start the entire game again. This wasn't the person's fault. The person dropped dead next to them. Whatever caused the death, they didn't cause it. It just happened next to them. And it's counted as sin, and all these animals have to die to make atonement, it says. So, you want to go the extra mile? You can go the extra mile. You might think, but I might mess up. Yeah, they did too. God makes a way for the mistakes. And so we don't want to be paralyzed by fear. If I commit to greater levels of holiness, what, what if I don't mess up? Well, what if I mess up? What if I go good for a week? I'm doing well for two weeks. And then in that third week, that third month, that third year, I mess up. Well, let me not aim high then. Let me not aim high. Let me just shoot low because then I can, I can make sure I don't miss. Don't be afraid of missing because atonement is available and it always has been. And to help us understand that, even if we don't miss, we still need atonement, which he goes into in verses 13 and following. When you're done with the Nazarite vow, you're done. That means you didn't touch anything to do with grape. You never had a drop of alcohol on your lips for the Nazarite. They never went near anybody dead. Nobody dead even accidentally was near them. The vow is over. Verse 13, and this is the law for the Nazarite when the time of his separation has been completed, Good job, you can well, yay, confetti, right? He shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and he shall bring his gift to the Lord. What kind of gift? Like a, a present? 
Well, no. One male lamb, a year old, without blemish, for a burnt offering. There's another dead animal. One ewe lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a sin offering. There's another dead animal. And one ram, without blemish, as a peace offering. There's another dead animal. And then a basket of unleavened bread, loaves of fine flour mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and their grain offering and their drink offerings. Man, is God hungry? No, God isn't eating these things, and God doesn't get hungry. These are symbols of what? You can't separate yourself. You can't have life. And no matter how many Nazarite vows that you do, even if you have performed everything the way you've been asked to perform it, there's still the separation for the Nazarite because they can't make themselves holy. And so symbolically, something else has to take death so that they can have life, even though they haven't overtly sinned and broken the Nazarite vow. And so what this is communicating is we do need to make sure that we understand that our zeal can never get us to God on its own. Atonement must be made. It's this whole ordeal with the offering. We'll just read it. It is God's holy word. Verse 18, And the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent. All that hair that was grown out to represent this holiness, this, this separation is then taken and, and uh, burnt on the peace offering. He shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire that is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall take the shoulder of the ram when it is boiled and one unleavened loaf out of the basket and one unleavened wafer and shall put them on the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved the hair of his consecration. And the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. They are a holy portion for the priest together with the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed. After that, the Nazarite may drink wine. And just as a side note, the scripture doesn't communicate there's anything wrong with drinking alcohol, but this vow was a way to separate yourself further uh, unto the Lord in symbolic ways. Now you see this whole ritual that's for the priest and this meal and they're waving this and then contributing that. It's pointing to the function of the priesthood. And we understand, as we've vi- visited, the priesthood was to make atonement for people that can't get to God on their own. And God is making sure they understood even a Nazarite successfully completing their sort of Navy SEAL workout thing unbroken. They've done all the, you know, the things that they're supposed to do on top of all the things everyone's supposed to do. You still need this sacrifice, that sacrifice, and the other sacrifice. Now let me point out a key term and a key phrase. The lamb in verse 14 that is brought is supposed to be unblemished. The lamb, the, the, um, the ewe lamb that is brought is without blemish, again, verse 14. And the one ram that is brought as the peace offering, end of verse 14, is without blemish. It's unblemished, unblemished, unblemished. And then the bread that they're supposed to bring in verse 15 is unleavened, unleavened bread, and unleavened wafers. Unblemished, 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 unleavened, unleavened, right? What is the emphasis? Why the repetition? Why all these sacrifices? Well, it's to communicate, even if you are a Nazarite, right? You're sort of the, the delta forces of, of God's army. Good, good for you, and that's great. And he wants to make room for that. 
But don't you dare think you can get to God on your own. Atonement is made outside of your works, outside of your performance. But that doesn't mean he doesn't want performance, see? It doesn't mean, don't you perform? Don't you know that you're supposed to sacrifice lambs because you can't perform? No, perform. Just remember, performance doesn't get you in. A sacrifice gets you in. But if the sacrifice gets you in, what does somebody in look like? Come on. Zeal, diligence, focus. Let's go. He doesn't squash it. He provides for it. So there's the rub. We feel like we're willing, but we also feel like we're unable. That unable part is the humility that we're supposed to have to recognize, I need Jesus to be the perfect performer, and I can't do it. But that willingness isn't supposed to disappear we're not supposed to say, see, Jesus fulfilled it, therefore I don't have to do it. Jesus fulfilled it so that you can do it. So that you can be zealous for it. And if you're sitting here and you feel like you're unwilling, if you repent and God transforms your heart, that's part of the transformation. Is the unwillingness turning into willingness. The things that you had a taste for before, now are distasteful. I can't believe I used to love that stuff. It's sinful, it's dirty, it's yucky. I just didn't see it as that before, and now I do. How does that change happen? It's because of the change of a stone heart made into a heart of flesh. The ram, the lamb, the birds, the unleavened bread, the unleavened wafers, it all represents Jesus Christ. It all points to our need for Jesus Christ. And so that he's God's perfect manna, he's the unleavened bread that was without any leaven, without any sin. He's the lamb that has no spot, no blemish. There's no lack of performance in Jesus Christ. He doesn't have to take a Nazarite vow. He is the ultimate holy pursuer of all that is good. And he performs it on our behalf so that we can have the atonement necessary for, to be zealous for good works. Here's the point. Through Christ... God makes a way for every believer to pursue holiness with zeal. God makes a way through Christ's atonement for every believer to pursue God like a Nazarite. Because the willingness is there, and through Christ, there's an ability there, isn't there? An ability we didn't have before when we were blind and enslaved to sin, But when he transformed our hearts, he gives us a way to follow Christ in what we do. We can't do it perfectly. We cling to the one who's perfect, but we do it zealously. I've said that word a lot today. It's like my new favorite word. Zeal, man. Zeal, zealous, not jealous. It's a different word. But it's it's the opposite of idle, lazy, laid back, malaise, apathy, atrophy. That's the opposite. Zeal is energy, diligence, effort. Like we went through 2 Peter. Make every effort. Peter's not like, oh, you're saved. Don't worry about it. You're in. You got the heaven ticket. Just sleep on the train and you'll arrive eventually. No, let's get to work. And when you read James, what's James' message? If you're not getting to work, you might want to revisit the thing you called faith. Because how does faith show itself? Through work. And so you might have a period of laziness, you might have a period where you're discouraged, but you've got to allow God to grab you out of the face mask and get you back out there on the field. The the Christian life is about pursuits, and we shouldn't read the Nazarite vow as something that's foreign, like, why in the world would anyone want to be more holy? We're supposed to go, wow, God in his grace 
wants us to pursue holiness. And he doesn't just say, eh, you can't do it, let's just kill a bunch of lambs and you go live how you want. No, the atonement provides a way for you to push into holy things. Let's put this verse just up here one more time. Titus 2.14, and I'll just close with some concluding thoughts really quickly. If you write notes in your Bible, if I were you, I mean, I would just put Titus 2.14 right in the column next to number 6. Because you'll see Jesus gave himself, that's all the sacrificial stuff in number 6. There it is. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. There's the 613 laws, right? All the do's and don'ts of Scripture are taken care of for us in Christ. But not to leave us there and not for us to live a life where we're just doing the bare minimum. We're only concerned with the explicit do's and don'ts and we're not concerned with doing anything above and beyond. In fact, if anyone in our lives does above and beyond, we're like, find me the verse for that. The verse doesn't say I have to do that and therefore I get to do that. No, he doesn't want to leave you just about the law. He redeems us from lawlessness and purifies us for himself. Now we're in the positive column. It's just not, don't do this stuff, but be like this, pure. A people for his own possession who are zealous, right, for good works. We're not asking what's the bare minimum we can get away with as Christians. We should be asking ourselves, how can we push further? Not because we're able to, but because he has enabled us to. And there's the difference. God empowers his people to do more and to push harder, and to not grow weary, and to not grow faint-hearted, and to be asking ourselves, let me look at my life, let me examine my heart, are there any ways that I can pursue the Lord with greater zeal? A few thoughts. The Nazarite vow was at least three things. It was abstinence-focused. The Nazarite vow was abstinence-focused focused. And this is in the category of things that don't, aren't required or necessary, but there are ways that you can discipline yourself to focus yourself a little bit more. What are some ways that we could do that? Things that aren't demanded of you necessarily, but there are things that Christians can do, spiritual habits, commitments, that we don't have to tell everybody else around us, how come you're not doing it? There's already a sign of unholiness. But to say, you know, for me, for this period, I, I need to do this. And let's not be haters on people who do that. Encourage it. Fasting is an example. And some people say, well, fasting was Old Testament. Well, Jesus said when he's torn away from his disciples, they'll fast in that day. Do you long to see him? Our longing to see the bridegroom again is communicated through fasting. So when's the last time you fasted? think about the habit of giving up food. I know some people say, well, I'm just giving up this, that, and the other thing. Yeah, well, you can do that. Just let's not call it fasting. Fasting is giving up food. And if you have dietary restrictions, you can't do it. Look, no one's telling you you have to do it. But let's just not like, well, I love food too much. I'm just going to fast from exercise. It's like, that's just dumb, right? Fasting is giving up food. Why? Why is that important? Why am I saying that? Because I'm trying to be strict. You need food to live, And so what you're doing is communicating to God, if I don't eat food for too long, I'll die. 
But more important than even physical sustenance is my spiritual sustenance. And I hunger for you in greater ways than I hunger even for food. Like, wow, that's really hard. I know. That's why it's, it's next level. Not everybody's fasting all the time. Fasting is an example. Paul talks about marital intimacy, putting a pause on marital intimacy for a season. To do what? To see how long you can go? For prayer. And then that's it. And then close it. And make sure it's a mutual agreement. But there's another way, isn't it? It's not, not wrong for a married couple to be intimate. Obviously not. It's not about right or wrong. It's about how can I focus myself for a season. Some of you might uh, consider for a season, or maybe for life, just giving up alcohol. You're like, well, the Bible allows me to. Yeah, it allows you to, but it doesn't command you to either. And here's something to think about. Uh, the ways in which the Nazarite vow was further than even what was required of the priests. Okay? One of the ways in which that was the case was the priests were to not drink alcohol when they're on duty. Every other time, they're allowed to drink alcohol. Now, why would God forbid drinking alcohol while on duty in the temple, handling the sacred things and making sure they don't touch the wrong thing and that the veil is in the right place and they're standing guard? Well, for the same reason, a police officer shouldn't be drinking when they're on duty. It does something to the senses, doesn't it? And so you might think, you know what? It does a little too much to my senses. I'm not saying everybody needs to give up drinking. I just, for myself, I might consider giving up drinking. Why? Because there's nothing wrong with pushing a little more, being a little more focused. It's not the same as requiring it of everyone. But we don't want to squash little ways, sometimes big ways, in which we can abstain from certain things that aren't wrong, but do bring us into a greater focus on the Lord. The Nazarite vow was abstinence-focused, the Nazarite vow was holiness-focused. And like we've talked about, it's not just looking at the things that Scripture says is bad. And then, oh, I don't have a verse on this. I guess I can do that. Right? Just think about entertainment. Is there a verse that says you can't watch a rated R movie? No. Should we all just watch any rated R movie? I mean, there's no verse. Where's the verse that says, Right? We, we have to have a spiritual wisdom that says, you know that lady of folly in Proverbs? She calls out to us in a lot of different ways. And let's not use Scripture, the lack of explicit verses, to not be considering ways in which, look, I'm not, you're, you might say to yourself, I'm not saying every household has to have this rule. But in my household, here's where we draw the line with what we watch. Here's where we draw the line with what we listen to. Here's where we draw the line, how we talk. I mean, where's the scripture verse that says certain words in the English language are off limits? There's no scripture verse. Should I then just talk however I want? Probably not. And so we graduate, don't we? We move from what the Bible clearly says and doesn't say and only content to live there and not being scared of legalism because we just want to push a little more. The Nazarite vow is abstinence-focused. The Nazarite vow is holiness-focused, which means not just the do's and don'ts, but thinking about your life and the things that are nagging at your holiness. They're pulling you away from holiness. And maybe not for everyone, but for you, you feel convicted. Think about abstaining. Finally, the Nazarite vow is God-focused, not man-focused, not performance-focused. 
not religious-focused. It's God-focused. And you see this in 6 verse 2. I'll just go real quickly through a few verses. The Nazarite vow is for what? To separate himself from things? No. Separate himself to the Lord. And you see in verse 5 that the time is completed and that time was separation to the Lord. Verse 6, that he shall be holy. And how does he describe holy? Right before it, separating himself to the Lord. You see it in verse uh, 8, that the separation is holiness to the Lord. And then if you look at verse 12, you see that he separates himself to the Lord. I, the point I'm just trying to make is not separate from. Separate from this. Separate from that. Even though it is, isn't it? No dead bodies, no corpses, no haircuts. But what the emphasis is, the, the separation is not just from things, but unto someone. And so if you decide, you know what, I want to push a little harder this year, I want to pursue him a little more this year, I want to stop using legalists and hypocrites as an excuse to be lazy. I want to push I want to be diligent. I want to be zealous. Well, we need to understand that our focus in those things is the Lord himself. We do it not because we desire to be a spiritual special forces, right? We do it because we desire the Lord. And if that means we push a little farther ahead than other people in our households and other people in the church sitting next to you, great. What does Paul say about someone who desires to be an elder? Well, he's immediately too cocky for himself, and so he can't be an elder. He's like, no, he desires something noble, doesn't he? It's not wrong to desire something noble. The door of elder isn't closed to, to people, to men, right? And the qualification is not that high. If you read the qualifications, it's just, look, be a Christian who understands the word, who knows the word, who's of good repute, isn't quarrelsome, isn't violent. It's okay to pursue and to want to be an elder, be a deacon, be a team leader, be a servant in ways that you haven't before. What I want to make sure we're careful of is that we recognize that, uh, I'm going to say this and then I'm going to explain it. We need to recognize that anorexia is no excuse for gluttony. What I mean by that is you might be like, you know what, people diet and they diet to the extreme and you see their bones sticking out. Wasn't there a time where plumpness was what was in? Yeah, do people go too far restricting their diet, too focused on it? Every tweet, everything is always diet this, diet that, and how they look and taking pictures of themselves in the bathroom mirror. And can you go too far on how you look and to the point where you're not eating anymore? You're throwing up in the bathroom, hiding it from your family and your friends. You're unhealthy. Yes, that's possible. But because that extreme is possible doesn't mean, so I'm just going to eat pizza all day. Gluttony. And what we do sometimes in the church is like, people that pursue holiness and all they talk about is Jesus and every conversation. I'm just trying to talk about sports and they got to bring in how they're evangelizing this person, evangelizing that person. Oh my goodness, I don't want to hang out with that person. It's just constant spiritual this, God that, Jesus this. Can't you just be normal? No! 
Are some of those people legalists? Do some of those people think because they can't watch a certain movie, you're a sinner because you watch a certain movie? Yes, those are the anorexics. But that doesn't mean there's, we need to float over here where people just don't care. It's just the bare minimal of Christianity. They only confess if they're caught. They only care about sin if somebody finds out. They might not even be a believer. What's the answer? The answer is to pursue Christ knowing I can't do it. I can't do it on my own. But because Jesus has done it, the Spirit of God indwells me so that I can do it. And the call of this passage isn't just a whip cracking like, get to work. It's, it's encouraging you. You can get to work. Don't be afraid of it. God has made a way for Nazarites in the church. Not the exact Nazarite vow, right? But the zeal for pleasing him and for pursuing holiness. As the worship team comes up, I'm going to pray for our hearts as we sing this song. Father, we ask that as we close together, may our singing in one voice, that united voice in song, be reflective of our united vision and desire to pursue you, to think about ways that we can uh, straighten some things out in our lives, and maybe some of us aren't thinking of extra things. Maybe some of us need to get serious about the things that are clear in Scripture, and we just haven't taken care of that yet. God, would you give us grace? Would you give us mercy? Even now as we're singing, would you allow our hearts to swell with your grace and trusting you for what it, that, that you will give us what it takes to be zealous and diligent? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's.